1: Welcome to the Footyology podcast with Rowan
0: Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology podcast. This is the Week One Finals Preview edition. They're finally here. Finals footy in the air, and uh, a great time to be alive. The mornings are, are crisp and start. The sun's starting to pop its head. No, sun doesn't have a head, but you know what I mean. The sun's starting to be a bit more visible from behind those clouds that have been covering the Melbourne and Australian skies for six months. As I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Finey?
2: Yeah, I'm well. You're nervous, Rowan Essendon, in the finals, of course. Haven't had a great run of it in recent years. In fact, Essendon in elimination-type finals have got a sketchy record, don't they?
0: Don't start me. Well, if you're listening to this uh, pre- Thursday night's big game in Perth. Uh, Yeah, I'm a little bit toey. If you're listening to this post-Thursday night, nah, it's all, you know, the fate's sealed. (laughs) No, look, I I go in with um, far more hope than expectation, put it that way, and you're right. And uh, have had two bouts of, of what came to be known as eliminitis, um, starting when I was a small child, finally, and I can rattle them all off right now. 72 lost to St Kilda, 73 lost to St Kilda, 79 lost to Fitzroy, 81 lost to Fitzroy, 82 lost to North Melbourne, and then, of course, in the modern era, we've had the uh, debacle in Adelaide, 2009, We've had the debacle against Carlton in 2011, the throwing away of a six-goal lead against North Melbourne in 2014, and the debacle in Sydney 2017. So, yeah, fair to say Essendon and Elimination Finals aren't a great mix. Fortunately, that's only one of four great games on the menu. I have to say, funny people talk about preliminary final weekend, the people's games and how much they love that. In the Final Eight system... Uh, the first week of finals has come to be my favourite and we've been lucky with it too. I mean, the first uh, time we had the four finals on one weekend in 94, the first year of the final eight, was one of the all-time great weekends of finals footing. You remember we had North Melbourne and Hawthorne, extra time, the same evening at the MCG, Billy Brownless, goal after the siren, uh, Geelong Footscray. We had uh, a huge upset, Melbourne beating Carlton. And then in Perth, we had almost another huge upset, Collingwood uh, almost getting up against the Eagles. But great weekend of footy, four finals, all appetising, doesn't get any better. For
2: the eight teams that are still alive, there's a great hope. And I've got to say, given the latter positions, especially with West Coast finishing fifth, there's no question that there's the possibility of a team coming from outside the top four. In other words, it's game on. Bulldogs have got plenty of momentum. Your own dons are up against it. But I tell you what, you can't win it if you're not in it. They're better off than the other 10 teams.
0: No, that's true. If Even if only uh, for one glorious week of September, it's not just the anticipation around finals, finally, Something about September... I think of uh I think of three things I think of the smell of freshly cut grass everyone's out mowing the lawns again. I was going to say cicadas could be a tad early for cicadas oh, cis those uh, uh the the bird noises in the air they that there's more of them i don't know they're chirpy or something happens the I'm fir- more I'm more conscious of it. You know what the third uh vibe around September is for me what's that hamburgers
2: I was going to say have you, have you smelt the First of the backyard barbecues oh, walking through. Oh, oh,
0: oh, have I what?
2: Well, f- for those people that uh, are yet to face the horror of cleaning the winter barbecue, which is a horror, the first time you get back to the barbecue. It is. There you might find Do you same.
0: burn the rats usually, or do you nah, just sort no of rats, kick there, them there off?
2: There is a cockroach. There's invariably yeah. something moving around in there. Yeah. And plenty of, you probably left your last your last cook probably there's remnants thereof. So if you'd rather just go straight to the source, get a great burger, leave the cleaning of the grill to the experts, leave the cooking of the burger to the experts, you go to 144 Britport Street, Albert Park, you go straight to Andrew's Hamburgers, 80 years experience means the best burgers in Australia.
0: And you leave the buns to the experts. You love buns. I love... I am obsessed with buns.
2: Now, how about if you wanted... In
0: addition to your house, even dreams of a swimming pool. You've got a pool, don't you? I do have a pool. Talk about uh, cleaning stuff. Um, Pond, pool, pool, pool. No, no, it's been, uh, the cover's been on, so it's in reasonable, Nick, if anyone wants a sub-Arctic dip at (laughs) the moment. Uh, We do have someone uh, in the off-season, they come around once a month and spend about 10 minutes getting rid of a few leaves and then charge you uh, about a grand for the exercise. No, it's not that bad actually Swimart mart malvin very big hello to the boys there they do a reasonable job for us i was going to say though i love the aroma of a freshly built house
2: <laughs> i don't know what they smell like <laughs> nicks bartels and hardwick build co inner city especially around the south melbourne albert park middle park area where so many of those formerly small cottages are now multi-million dollar residences can optimize your land and your opportunities with a fantastic rebuild. Cover, um, so you've got the covers on your pool. You're like the English uh, English cricket curators.
0: Yeah, except they don't come on and off all the time. They stay very firmly on. And, and Nick Spartel's builders to the stars, of course, Dyson Heppel, Scott Pendlebury, Mike Sheehan. Just to name a few. Do you reckon when they're doing their renos, they all sort of bunk down together in the one house? That'd be interesting, wouldn't it?
2: I don't think that they do. I do know this, that two of their, two of his rebuilds are leading their teams into finals action. That's a pretty good strike
0: rate. It is. And Mike Shane uh, will be leading the football media in analysis of the weekend games after Footyology podcast, of, of course. course. And the Footyology website, uh, au. All right. Time to get started. A uh, lot of news on the agenda. Let's talk about it. On
1: Newsfeed.
0: Well, perhaps not unpredictably, Fionny, we do have the finals upon us, but much of the news landscape in the media, both papers, on air, TV, is occupied with trade talk. So just before we get into the nitty-gritty of that, how have you found this uh, week's... We had the week off, the controversial week off, Uh, the now-controversial EJ Witten game, um, thanks to a bizarre change of format. But how have you found this week in terms of the build-up to the four finals? Well,
2: one of the great, probably the most salient criticism of the week off is the momentum that is lost between the final week of football, which was exciting and we had ladder positions not decided until the final games, take a week off and you have to really reset the dial as a football fan to be, uh, to start to get into the finals. And I think that week off really does lose fans of the other teams. Now, as a supporter of a side that's not in the finals, of course, I'm invested in football through footyology and through other pursuits. But I think for the other football fans, it really does mark the end of the season and almost the end of interest. Whereas, without that buy, it keeps the fire burning. And and they, I believe, the AFL needs to make more of an effort in this week, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, leading up to the first final, which is of course a Thursday night, as we have it tonight. I would say it's been mooted.
0: muted, 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 muted. It's been muted that it's been muted. Correct. It's been muted. Um, no, I, I couldn't agree more. That's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. I mean, if you barrack for a team that isn't involved, it, it's sort of, you know, could you sort of um, engender the same level of interest in other teams for two weeks between games? I'm not sure you can. And I did find last weekend, although I did end up watching both VFL semi finals on the TV. Um, but you know, as much for fear of breaking the habit, I, I don't know about you, but I find um, for given my busy lifestyle for six months during the season, I'm sort of going on adrenaline and if the habit is broken, I'm sort of I'm completely thrown and it's hard to sort of regain it you know and uh, and last week, um, you know I went and did the shopping and a few things like that and went and bought these weird things. Called vegetables and fruit and stuff. And um, I was just thinking, I was almost sort of ready to slip into summer mode again, you know. And I started remembering what that felt like to actually, you know, sort of socialise with people and watch different things on TV and stuff. And yeah, I did have to sort of flick the switch again this week. So it's, yeah, I mean, look, we've talked about it a lot, haven't we? It was the whole thing. The premise of the whole week off is, uh, I think, a silly one and a complete overreaction to teams resting players in a handful of games. Um, and they keep—it's sort of like AFLX. They keep bringing out different rationales for the week off, don't they? And then it became, "Oh, we want to celebrate the season, so we have all the awards." Well, all the awards seem to be conducted almost in camera on Fox Footy over about a seventy-two hour period. Yep um where's the you know what we don't get and it's probably see uh you know a bit of a uh divergence in the media watch territory but you know where are the sort of day by day preview type things looking towards this week's games i know i mean like uh, mark robinson for example had a there was a double pager in the herald sun about richmond you know needs a flag to justify its Uh, three years of of great footy, um, stuff like that, but I don't reckon there's been that much of it. Unfortunately, the
2: actual meat and potatoes of building up to the finals has maybe been lost in some of, as you said, some of this pre-planned, the festivities that were supposed to keep us sated until the finals actually began, and I don't think they've hit the mark. I'll tell you what, speaking about, talking about um, keeping fans of the opposition or teams that didn't make the top eight engaged, I've sort of cast a new award, a new trophy. Yeah, what is it? It's the Donald Trump Award. Fake news. Well, not fake news. It's, it's I'm, I'm going to award it each year because it will be up for grabs every year for gross stupidity by a football club. And this year, it's already gone off, and I'd like to award it to GWS. What have I done? The first club that attempts to engage their cross-city rivals in a let's-do-it-for-New-South-Wales south wales or for Sydney" rally. They didn't, did they? Yeah, they did. So GWS came out during the week and said they call all, on all Sydney supporters to get behind Greater Western Sydney and their push for a premiership. Oh
0: God. Do you love that one? So who issued the call? I, I only
2: just, I saw the headline oh on one no. of the AFL feeds on one of the, one of the uh, suppliers might be Fox Sports or afl.com.au. I didn't read on because the award was therefore already won. Do you love that one? Oh, I
0: love that one. It's it's a it's rip best,
2: It's best when Collingwood are in a grand final against West Coast yeah. and they ask all Victorians to get behind Collingwood.
0: Yeah. In fact, I used to write that column virtually every year explaining to people from other states that supporters of... Uh, Fair supporters of Victorian clubs would much prefer the non-Victorian sides to win a flag than their own local rivals and it, it's like asking it would be like asking
2: palestine to support <laughs> israel in the world cup look israel's made the world cup finals come on palestinians get behind israel yeah. it's a local team you. I mean, it's
0: ridiculous. Yeah, let's do it for the Middle East. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's usually a call issued by a politician, and nothing screams louder, this is a politician that knows absolutely diddly squat about <laughs> sport than, than someone coming out and saying that. Oh, I didn't Ipso facto, that. Ipso
2: facto, the Donald Trump Award. Yeah, no, A it's politician good. who knows
0: nothing. I like that one. And it's certainly off to a good start, too, in Sydney. So, um... Whilst we are sort of critical on one level about the volume of trade talk, there's certainly plenty of it. So, um, actually, let's start with uh, another item, because it's fairly important, I think, in given the background surrounding this club. But uh, Taylor Walker's decision to relinquish the Adelaide captaincy.
2: I don't know whether it was pushed, jumped, read the tea leaves understands where he is in the football world, but his leadership has been questioned over the last couple of years, ever since the grand
0: final against Richmond,
2: where he and his team failed to fire. And I think it releases pressure on Don Pike, and not Don Pike himself, but on the football department to make that decision for him.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, in fairness to Tex, I reckon there's been a bit of, wisdom in hindsight with his leadership for example um the way people still bring up the power stance that Adelaide did during the finals that year I mean if they had a won that grand final he would be he would have been portrayed as a great leader of of the Crows but the things like the power stance it wouldn't have even merited a mention so how about some other aspects of his leadership, his reaction to Jake
2: Lever leaving the club—that
0: that was the. Well, I was going to say that was the first time I thought, "Gee, that's not a, that's not a great move." And of course, that was literally you know within um, days of of losing that grand final. Um, that wasn't a smart call, um, and yeah, that was the first time I thought, "Yeah, no, that probably isn't great leadership." I mean, you you've been. Far more critical of him than I have, what are the things that irk you about his leadership? look i
2: am I in the Grant Thomas camp that says the captain's main the main difference between captains and other leaders of the club is how good they are at two up, in other words, whether they call heads or tails. yeah, they're not cricket captains. they're not out there making decisions over by over as to who bowls and field settings. That being said. It's his game style that demands, given his frame, given his, just the way he takes the field, his, his appearance is that of a, a a impact player, a physical player, a player that really should be leading from the front in terms of taking charge of the game. But for a big forward, he doesn't go for enough contested marks, he's more a leading forward than anything else. He and Jenkins mark on the lead. They're not contested marks or pack marks. It's hard to work off them as a small forward. And unfortunately, when the whips have been cracking over the last two years, and they've been cracking plenty in terms of needing somebody to stand up, it's rarely been Tex Walker.
0: I wonder if there's an argument, and I'm I'm thinking on the run here, and I can't actually mount a case to say this, but is it harder to be... A uh, an official leader if you're a key position player than a um, ground-level on uh, ball. Absolutely.
2: It's a key forward will be marked ultimately by his return, his scoreboard return.
0: and So why isn't a midfield a ground-level midfielder?
2: Because they get their 25 touches as a matter of course. We still seem to drool over any midfielder that gets over 30 touches when mm. the reality is if you're a... Prime midfielder at a football team, 30s a pass mark. Yeah, but you know, oh, you got 30 plus touches, champion effort. It's, it's it's unheard of almost for a midfielder to get below 20 touches. So they can hide behind the statistics. Whereas a key forward, just like a bowler being a captain of a, a cricket team, how many wickets did he take? You know, if he's mm. if he's continually returning nunfas, his position in the team and he's leadership is going to be questioned.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Actually, it's a good analogy, isn't it? Because there's not many bowler captains or, you know, the super successful ones that spring to mind. No. It's Richie Beno's one. Courtney Walsh, captain. Yeah. Was he? A, yeah, I guess he had... They were sort of on the wane by then, weren't they? Yeah. It's just traditionally it's it's tended to be batsmen, hasn't it? So, I mean, text... I mean, keepers make good captains because they can hide... They're like midfielders. They can hide behind the statistics. Well, yeah, but keepers also have to there's a very tactical side to their role as well. I mean they get a better view of of the game um
2: except you know.
0: Tim pone <laughs> oh that's that's tough, well, he admitted it. I was going to say you know the keepers get a better view of the game than anyone um. I was going to say though uh, until 1977 keepers actually prevented the viewing public from getting a good view On of the, ABC. the game because every second over you're looking at Rod Marsh's ass. Yeah. I've uh, got to know that fairly well. <laughs> All right, so Tex Walker giving up the captaincy, uh you'd think it's a well Rory Sloane just becomes sole captain. I don't like the dual captain thing myself.
2: No, either do I.
0: Yeah. Or neither do I. Well, it didn't what was that... What's the most aside? There was one year aside had... Oh, Geelong had about four, four one captains. year, didn't they? Yep. Ablett, Hocking, uh, Fred Wooler. Stoneham. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That was about 1995. 19- Fred 95. Wooler. Oh, I just thought I'd throw that one in. Um, Charles Brownlow himself. Yes, Kaji yeah. Groves. Now, he's known as a great administrator, but do you know he was also a very good player? Charles Brownlow. Yeah, I'm, back in I'm, the VFA I'm days. glad. It gives it more cred.
2: And what's happened to that, by the way? That, what? That... Ruling should be coming through any moment now
0: on oh, the premierships. Yeah, forgets the Colin going, Carter rule. Forget
2: Geelong <laughs> going for a flag this year. Yeah, they're trying to scoop seven. Yeah, yeah, I know.
0: yeah. The Colin Carter uh, amendment. I don't think it's gonna, up in arms. I don't think it's going to get up. No. Uh, oh, Collingwood? Did they not win a VFA yeah, they won flag? Yeah, Yeah, right. Okay. Did they lose a whole lot of grand finals? Uh, no, there was only
2: ever one
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah, you told yeah. me this. They nicely, won the only they? grand final. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, that's history. They'd prefer, I reckon. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk the trade stuff because uh, here's the the ones that caught my eye, and we'll go through them one by one. Josh Bruce. Now, I've got to say, this one really surprises me. I reckon Josh Bruce has been pretty good for St Kilda, and most even this season, uh, most games I saw this season, he was at least a threatening presence for them. Yeah. Um, I'm really surprised. No.
2: He- it had to happen, unfortunately. Why?
0: First of all, he's much loved at the club, been a very good player. So why does that have to happen? Because
2: Max King is going to play forward next year. He's, St Kilda have to hope that he's over injury concerns. He played three or four very good games in the VFL, like really exciting, and then did his ankle. Mm. But they are hunting down a second Ruckman, and they're going to play that second Ruckman. Let's say it's Paddy Ryder. Now, Rowan Marshall is very capable of going forward. So you've got got two talls, King and Membry, already in the forward line. And then you're going to play two Ruckman forwards because both Ryder and Marshall can drop forward. And there really is no room for another tall forward.
0: It's just how it plays out. I know. It just sounds to me like putting the cart before the horse, yeah, so you, yeah, you, yeah. you're going to get rid of a, someone who is right now very capable in the expectation that Max King becomes a super-duper key forward, which he may well do.
2: But the fact is that, would you agree that, I mean, last, in 2018, Josh Bruce only played three games, but would you agree
0: that... he yeah, he played three games last year. Yeah.
2: Oh, okay. Would you agree that his other seasons, his returns been pretty good? Yeah. Yeah. And Membry's been a good recruit? Yeah. Well, it hasn't worked, unfortunately. Membry and Bruce, unfortunately, as even a, when McCartan's played, even when they've, the rare times have had McCartan, it just hasn't worked. Unfortunately, St Kilda, had, you know, with that combination, they, they're both working. I think they're quite similar. They're sort of, they range far and wide as forwards.
0: Yeah, but Bruce Bruce to me looks like more of a, uh, you know, if someone's going to kick a bag to me, it'd look more like Bruce. Membry to me is more a, yeah, almost he, a third tall type.
2: Yeah, Membry kicked more goals this season. Yeah. and And I think it's out of respect for Josh. He's much loved at the club. And the feeling is that One more year at St Kilda, and they could have hung on to him. He's got one year to go on his contract. There's no need to get rid of him. Mm. One more year as a 28-year-old, it becomes difficult for him to get that final good contract. Whereas the Bulldogs are offering him three or four years, potentially. Yeah. And he's going to get one more good deal out of football, and I think everybody at Marrabin wants that for Josh.
0: Oh well, I mean, if that's if that is the case, well, that's very honourable. I just and they
2: do believe that they're going to get Ben King in twelve months.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, this is one of the things about the trade market I, I find surprising that this is happening more and more, and it's probably more the speculation. People will come out and say, you know. Um, Richmond should give away Dustin Martin and Jack Rewalt so they can get twenty seven first round picks. You know, sort of like you give away something that's proven and really good, so you can get, uh, you can invest more in speculation. You know, yeah. about some potential to,
2: proven to a point. Yeah, See, Kilda have to change their their makeup to go into the season next year with Bruce and Membry again would be the equivalent of, what's the definition of insanity, making the same mistake over and over? Yeah. Unfortunately, it has not proved to be the sort of combination that can make the finals.
0: Yeah, okay. No, well, you, you follow them very closely, so I'll take that under advisement. Um, all right, another one, uh, not a trade, but a re-signing, and there was certainly speculation about this bloke. Um going elsewhere, Carl Amon has decided to stay put with Port Adelaide, so that's good, definitely a breakout uh, season for him this year and I must say I was sort of having my doubts about just whether he was going to amount to much but he really showed a bit for him this year so that's a that's a win for the power
2: Yeah, 17 games this year for Amon a three year deal with Melbourne and St Kilda showing interest in Carl and ultimately they can't have they're going to Lose some players, but I think it's a controlled burn at the moment. What they don't want is players... (laughs) A controlled burn? Wow. Well, that's what I call when when players leave the club that the club are willing to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. So Sam Gray will probably leave, Paddy Ryder. But these are players that the club has budgeted for and, in fact, probably encouraged to look elsewhere. Mm. What they don't want, what a club doesn't want, is a leak of players that they are not budgeting for. So for Port Adelaide, Carl Amon's re-signing was very important.
0: Yeah, well, they did this. You could argue they did this last off-season, couldn't you, too, with Wingard, um, Pittard and Pollock.
2: Correct. I don't know whether Pollock was somebody that they aimed to get rid of. but mm. Certainly they weren't able to match North Melbourne's godfather type of offer.
0: Um, the other one that caught my eye, and I only just noticed this this morning, and quite out in the open, too, uh, Dan Butler, Richmond small forward, had a meeting with Carlton during the week. and uh, I was watching that VFL um, uh, qualifying final last Saturday and thinking, he is a really good player and, you know, it says a bit about Richmond's depth these days, but a uh, premiership player who would be great value for most clubs, I think, he'd be a good pickup.
2: Yes. Of course, an opportunity missed by sub-editors. Uh,
0: the Butler did it. We'll uh, get you, Butler. Uh, oh, <laughs> very good.
2: A picture of Carlton. That's <laughs> yeah, <it's> good. <laughs> we'll get you, Butler, because it looks like they are going to get Butler.
0: Yeah. Who said that? Blakey. Blakey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. there's no blanket Now, let's not lapse into a five minute um, monologue about English sitcoms Go on
2: Okay, well, he'd be a very good pick I'll tell you what though 30 babe. goals last year Jeez, uh,
0: cra- Jeez, that was a crap show on the buses If you're ranking English comedies I've had said, th- I knew I'd do this I've said this my whole life English comedies have either been outstanding Or absolutely bloody awful And I've just thought did the same people ever watch both, or was that completely different audiences? I mean, you've got, you know, the brilliance of Monty Python and Faulty Towers and, and uh, you know, Black Adder and that sort of stuff, and then you've got It Ain't Half Fault Mum, and Are You Being Served, and,
2: you know, My Pussy! <laughs> That's uh, Are You Being Served. Uh, correct. That's Mrs. Slocum. Yes. The, just not an anatomical admission by... Roman Connolly. The on the buses I can watch because it's actually a very interesting <laughs> look. It's a bit of a time capsule going At back to the At the
0: sexual repression of English society. Well well,
2: you go back to the seventies and just how different the world was in the seventies and the one thing that stands out for me in that programme Racism. Is the, <laughs> no, that was
0: mind your language.
2: That was um Love Thy Neighbour.
1: Yeah, but, Love Thy Neighbour, that's right. But
2: the Cruel relationship between Arthur and Olive. You know, he was the husband who lived in the house with the butlers, and he was just—it was cruel. It was vicious. It was when you talk about um, when you talk about physical. There wasn't physical um, repression, but boy,
0: emotional he, abuse. It was uh, abuse, is the yeah. word. But it and, was it and-
2: was. Utterly cruel, and now,
0: Olive was pilloried because she wore glasses. Correct? Oh,
2: a number of reasons. You know, he constantly bemoaned marrying her and just at any opportunity just put her down. And whilst that isn't funny, it's an interesting. It's it's a it's looking back in time. Of course, it was for the sake of comedy. It was expanded upon, but you've got to say that. Gee, we've come a long way since then. Well, I, I always, you know, it's a sad story about the guy who played Arthur, because he was a school teacher and he he was an actor in part, and he never really shook the tag of Arthur. Yeah, and tragically, he ended up taking his own life. Is that right? Yeah.
0: Wow, you do know an incredible lot about an incredible lot of things. Not always it's useful, important. but Correct. now, I was just final word <laughs> on English comedy. I always think sexual repression. I mean the amount of double entendres that go on in those things, you know, Frankie Howard and Carry On or whatever. They're sort of the only society in the world where someone could walk into someone's house and see a fruit bowl with a banana and two oranges and start pissing themselves, you know, um, and like, melons. Yeah, I mean, we we just see two oranges and a banana. They see a a fellas.
2: Oh, they can't say the they can't talk about the city of Bristol. <laughs>
0: Without reverting to the rhyming slang of Bristol City yeah. being your breasts. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, what were we talking about? Uh, just, oh, damn, Butler. Anyway, he'd be a good pick-up, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would be. <laughs> uh, might be time for us uh, Just to... very quickly, one other... Of course, is just very quickly. No, no, yep. just
2: one other interesting piece of transfer or, or trade news. Yeah. Alex Keith touring Moorabbin.
0: Yes, yeah, you know, good, good call. It was earlier in the week, so I sort of slipped my mind. But uh,
2: on a serious level, with St Kilda probably shopping Jake Carlisle around, which is interesting as well.
0: It is too. I
2: think, I think it's the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, oh, but Carlisle's when he hasn't been injured. Obviously, that's been an issue. But he, yeah, he's I'm just mean, a bit
2: laconic for my liking. He's a bit sort of lopy.
0: Yeah, well. Um, that's what he is He was sort of on the nose a bit at than By the time he left And that was as much about attitude as anything
2: yeah, He just sort of gambols around But Alex Keith Gambols yes. with an O oh, Probably
0: important we make that distinction
2: <laughs> Yeah he's That's one indiscretion he hasn't dipped into I don't think But Alex Keith would be a good pick up I reckon
0: Yeah and he'd be great in the um, Summer cricket, cricket match a, yeah. as well Yeah Um yeah, no, that is interesting. And uh, Alex Keith, yeah, very uh, uh, well chronicled medical checkup he had with him. It's all very out in the open these days, isn't it? These sort of things used to once be very clandestine, but everyone seems quite open about it now.
2: I've got to ask on a on a, on a more um, on a humorous level. Why do you need to tour? I love when they go, he's had a tour of Moorabbin. Yeah, yeah. What does that involve? <laughs> roll up, roll up, roll up. I mean, what, what, what are they, what's the tour of Moorabbin he, he, involve?
1: He
0: rolled off in the bus. you know, yeah, they correct. did the neighbours to us. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: right. Don't, don't feed, don't open the windows.
0: <laughs> See where Finey once stood in the
2: animal correct, enclosure.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and is everybody told to be on like best behaviour? Alex, Keith is touring. So people were whitening their teeth. Receptionists. The normal receptionist was replaced with an
0: actress. Yeah.
2: Good morning, Mr. Keith. <laughs> it's like okay going to Willy Wonka. The Chocolate Factory. <laughs>
0: I don't know why I did that morning, Mr. Keith, because it just reminded me of the start of the Aerosmith clip for Love in an Elevator where Steven Tyler walks into the lift and the and lift operator goes morning Mr Taylor going down <laughs> which is about as suggestive as carry on so I think it's time we carried on um, with our next segment and we'll leave this new segment with one quote funny
1: I'll get you butler on Footyology media watch
0: Okay, well, uh, normally there's a bit of slagging off and uh, critical observations on the fourth estate going on in this segment. But uh, high praise indeed today. And um, if you missed it, this and you have any interest in football, this is a must-watch. And I'm speaking of a documentary that was aired on the ABC on Tuesday evening called Collingwood From the Inside Out. Uh, it is a, I guess you'd call it, fly-on-the-wall type documentary uh, to filmmakers who I will tell you who they are because they deserve a lot of credit.
2: I reckon I could name them. I, this would be a good effort if I could name them. There was Josh Cable yep. and Marcus Cobbledick.
0: That's a very good... Not bad, eh? Uh, hey? Yeah.
2: I, saw, I thought, when I saw the credits run, I thought, those two young men, I believe according to the credits, Josh Cable filmed it as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I, I think, um, apologies if this isn't the case, guys, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think they've got a huge body of work in this particular field, so it's a fantastic effort. And, look, we've seen, um, I remember, you know, a fair while back lamenting the lack of good football documentaries and literature and stuff. There's no doubt that's changed a lot over the last 15 20 years and there's been some great footy docos. I still think there could be far more than we do. I think the Americans uh, do this sort of stuff a lot better. I guess resources come into it and, and the amount of time and the amount of people you have to work on these projects. But look, if you haven't seen it, uh, it is available on ABC iview. I saw it there last night. Um, it follows Collingwood's 2018 and uh, not just Sort of on a round-by-round round basis, so it does sort of take you chronologically through the season. Although, having said that, it starts with um, the scene in the Collingwood team room immediately after the grand final loss, and it's a, it's a very powerful starting point. And I guess it, this sort of makes sense too as a film technique, because there's a, a really sort of dramatic, not dramatic, but a heartfelt quote from Buckley, the first words he speaks to his team after the grand final loss and he says, you know, I, I don't know how to lead you right now, you know, and he's in—he's very emotional and, and he says, I don't know how to lead you. But what, what he's unveiled over the uh, subsequent hour is the extent to which he did lead them through that year and remade himself as a coach, I think, and really sort of um, re-examined his whole philosophy about football and what is important and and what isn't. And we see they follow him very closely. They also zero in on three players with whom there's a number of interviews throughout the course of the year. And and they are Brody Grundy, Adam Trelaw, and Jared Blair. Now they got lucky here, but you know, hats off. Um, they got lucky here. Brody Grundy had a, a great season, and it was a, a real sort of coming of age for him. So we see his stocks rise and we see him sort of assessing his place, not just in the football world, but he's, he's doing studies at university and he's sort of struggled to manage his time and all that sort of stuff. Then you get Adam Trelaw, which is quite remarkable from a couple of perspectives. Really serious injury where he tore both hamstrings, had to have surgery missed about half a season. But also his candidness about... Um, his anxiety issues and real battles with his mental health. And then a third one, and perhaps the most poignant, Jared Blair, who, you know, former premiership player, a warrior coming to the end, who knows he's sort of on the fringe of selection, just cannot crack it for a game. And I think one of the most dramatic things I've ever seen in a football film, any football film, is the moment where we follow Jared Blair into a room with Nathan Buckley and Robert Harvey, and I think Jeff Walsh might have been there as well, where he is told, that's it, we're not renewing you for next year. And uh, we see that moment. It is incredible access. Um, now, there, there are, like I said, fine. Sorry, I'm rambling here, and I want to, but I'm so enthusiastic about it. You know, there are a number of fly-on-the-wall type footy things out there. I like this one. I like two things, uh particularly. I like the understatedness of it. So it let the pictures sort of tell the story and the and the interviewees' words tell the story. I really liked the musical score behind it. It wasn't overly dramatic, you know, those things can get very AFL three sixty a bit guilty of this sometimes. The music's sort of like, you know, the the Ten Commandments or something sometimes um so I, and I, it had a general understatedness that i really liked about it as well it it was an absolute ripper and i thought totally gripping
2: these uh, fly on the wall documentaries are important because they not only give us a moment in time for a football club but also for football and for society and how The relationship between coach and the young men is very interesting. And I can think of three that are probably equidistant almost in time. The one that we saw this week, the Collingwood story. Yeah. Inside Collingwood.
0: Uh Collingwood from the Inside. From the Inside. Yeah.
2: Year of the Dog.
0: Excellent. And I I think that was about the first, wasn't it? 1997, that was made. Okay, so
2: that was 20 years ago. Yeah. uh, And about 20 years before that. Michael Cordell made that one. And about 20 years before that, not a documentary, but the book about Ron Barassi.
0: Oh, The Coach by John Power. Correct. Powers.
2: And there you got a very stark look at the relationship between coach and players. Yeah. And how it has... Changed through um, baby boomers, through the real power coach, the Ron Barassi blood and thunder type coaching and finger pointing and example making and setting, through to Terry Wallace, starting to interrelate more with his players but still very forceful as a coach. Mm. And now we see Nathan Buckley learning to un- understanding the need to change as young men want to be heard and each have their own stories yeah. that need to be appreciated.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that they're 20 years – that's a really good call, but interesting how they're virtually almost that, 20 years yeah, apart, yeah, isn't it? Because
2: of, And that's about the, the generational um, distance that you'd want to – See, not only the change in football, but the change in society.
0: But it always makes me think, though, I I sort of get it in terms of resources from a filmmaking point of view, but John Powers, the coach, 1977, I'd read that probably not long after it was released as a kid, and I I read it, I reckon, four or five times because it was just so powerful and so... I felt so invested in the story in North Melbourne's season, and of course, again, remarkable um, time to be doing it. come yeah, that's yeah, right. They ended up, you know, drawn grand final, and they played five finals to win a flag. Blah blah blah. But why didn't that inspire a whole sort of genre of of similar football literature?
2: Unfortunately, the access that was given probably to John Powers is not, and back then would have been difficult to get. I'm assuming. Mm. Yeah. Most clubs... It's funny, can I just most say... clubs were... I don't think most clubs were... Whether it was Ron Joseph or... I imagine it was Ron Joseph. Progressive enough to, yeah. to open their doors to a, a journalist or an author to come in and warts and all analyse and write... A documentary club's year
0: They were very progressive Barry Cheatley Who was their marketing man Was, yep. was also big in that I'll Just, just uh, quickly In 1993 When North Sort of rose under Dennis Pagan um, Ken Merrigan uh, Was probably the best Sports editor I've ever had He was sports editor of a Sunday age And he came up with the idea Because he loved that book We tracked down John Powers and um, we sent him out. He spent a couple of weeks out in North Melbourne again and he did a, it was only a couple of weeks, but he did a similar sort of thing for the paper and it was similarly fantastic. It's interesting that these... No longer with us, sadly, John Powers.
2: Interestingly, these three examples of documenting a club's season were not done by names synonymous with football journalism.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is, is a good thing. Yeah, it is because I wonder why. Maybe the
2: no pre no preconception. Yeah,
0: well, maybe the sort of day to day footy journals are too sort of caught up in the day to day stuff because it yeah. does it does require time. Also, uh, whilst we're if we're going to throw literature into this, there certainly has been, and again the intervals, two thousand and seventeen, forty years after the coach Conrad Marshall's uh, year with Richmond when they won the flag in two thousand and seventeen. That yeah. is. For me, that is on a uh, impre- it 's probably even a, a little bit better that probably is the best footy book i've read conrad 's book it's right. so well written he 's a great writer, and the subject matter is fantastic and it's and the punters the reaction it was really interesting watching the Collingwood docco and being on social media as it was being aired because I tweeted several things about it, you know the jared blair scene i i you know it was so raw and I tweeted something about that and it became a, a trending hashtag, but people just universally just absolutely loved it. And it, it takes them places that they don't have access to. It's not just that, though. It taps into the, the heart of what the game is about. And for me, that's almost the, the f- most fundamental message out of that Collingwood documentary, and it's beautifully encapsulated by Nathan Buckley. And whilst you have your go, I'm going to look up the quote because I wrote it down. And I thought, this is the essence of football.
2: It was interesting that occasionally through the documentary, we saw Nathan Buckley's... Obviously, he's an intelligent individual. I really like Nathan. I would met him through SEN and I couldn't be more impressed by him. He's got a great understated sense of humour and a real willingness to learn and maybe that intensity that also impressed me was stripped back a bit last year and served him well to become a more accessible coach. Now, every now and then during this program, there were quotes and he lent on some Asian philosophies.
0: That's right. Yeah. The, uh, I can't remember the now, name it's, now. It's about uh, the plate. Yeah.
2: Kitsugune, yeah. the Japanese art of taking a broken piece of pottery or crockery and not throwing it
0: away. That's not the same one who's got everyone cleaning up their house now, is it? Decluttering. What's that woman's name? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I just, sorry, sorry, that was a stupid aside. Go on. But, uh,
2: yeah, it was just an interesting... Obviously, he had picked that up through his reading or something he had seen and applied it to football. And you just had a look at the faces of the Collingwood players... And they seem to be on board with his, let's call them outside the square, ways of motivating the players. Now, another...
0: Well, just on that too, I mean, early on, you see an interview with Brodie Grundy talking about the old Buckley. And and he's quite critical, isn't he? You know, he said uh, he, he... it was of the view that if you worked your hardest and you weren't getting results, well, it means you'd need to work harder. And he said, I couldn't disagree with that more, you know. And um, you could see how his estimation in their or uh, sorry, their estimation of him just completely changed.
2: Yeah, it's actually very interesting watching Brody Grundy throughout the documentary because the Brodie Grundy that we see talking to camera with his glasses, yeah, very well-spoken. Focusing as much on education and his tertiary education as he was focused on football, yeah, is a very different person to the number one ruckman in the AFL that we see on the field every week, yeah. And it was almost, who is this geezer? You know, it was two very different people. You know which what? He, which he was at pains to point out that he wanted. I really found this both insightful and very. Very intelligent um, self analysis by Brody when he spoke about the need to develop Brody Grundy, the person, whilst he's a footballer, because the footballer will die when he retires. That's right. Yeah. And he wants the Brody Grundy that is left to be a rounded person. Yeah. And I think a lot of footballers drop off the end of the, you know, f- feel that they're standing on a precipice at the end of their football career because they are only so-and-so, the footballer. Yeah. And Brody realises very, very personally that that day is coming and when that day comes, he wants there to be much more left over than just his football career.
0: I think we'll see more characters like Brodie Grundy in the game. in fact, I was thinking that as we we're watching him because I had the same sort of reaction as you. Wow, he's a bit sort of different. But maybe that's a generational observation for because in in the realms of younger people now, is what he does that different? You know, the no, man, not the, at man, all. the man bun and the yeah, you know a, what I mean. Like, we're,
2: know, we there's a father of a twenty two year old. They are very much, young people are very much, I think more so than my generation, invested in the future of the world mm. and their own future selves. And I, I, I think of myself as a young 20-year-old. I went overseas a couple of times. I played cricket overseas, and I lived in the moment. I I, I was indestructible, but I had no plans for the future. You know, I was living, I was living each day to its fullest – and I don't regret it, mm. but without the, without without the. Either concern for myself, my future self, or my future planet that the young people today of today have.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, they're very they're switched on in in so many ways, and they're also, one thing I, do, I really do like about young people now is the lack of uh, judgment of of their peers and
2: but incredible uh, judgment of their parents.
0: Yeah, well, that goes with the territory. But, look, I mean, I'll put this personally. I mean, it's just... If I said this to a young kid, they'd probably think I'm an idiot. But things like, okay, my son, David, wears glasses... Now, when I was a kid, if you wore glasses at school, that was that was a cue for immediately a cue for, for teasing and yeah. and bullying. And like he, I, I did say this to him once a couple of years ago, and he looked at me like I was mad. Like no one, literally, no one has ever said anything about his glasses. You know, that sort of bullying and, and picking on people for you know physical features or whatever, um, yeah. it just doesn't happen.
2: Yeah, I've asked at various times, you know, with four kids. I've asked, you know, if they've come home upset or they've dropped their grades. You know, are you being picked on or bullied? And it, no, not at all. Yeah, but you are a bit different. Yeah, it's we're a, all different. I
0: oh, know. It was in in it was my daughter Andrea. If she came home upset, and I said, "Why?" It'd probably be I've just been reading the greenhouse gas emission figures for yeah. two thousand and seventeen, <laughs> yeah, and we're right. we're below target. Now, here's I've found that quote from Nathan Buckley. This is the very. Uh, the final words spoken in Miss Docko and it's an interview with Bucks, uh, I think it was probably at the start of this year. So they've started a new pre-season, a bit of time and space from the grand final and he's sort of reflecting on um, having been involved now in several losing grand finals as both a player and an assistant coach and a coach. Um, And he says this, he says, throughout life, everyone wants to have truths they come back to that drive them to their next level of growth or understanding. That can come in the form of numbers, it can come in the form of absolutes, vision, etc. But the human side of it is far more important than I ever imagined it was. And what's even bigger than that is that I enjoy it far more than the numbers when I thought that they were the be-all and end-all. Yep. And that what does it you might hear that and think, Oh it's a bit wanky, what does it mean? Well to me it was it it was reflected in just little things like I can't get this out of my head. But on grand final day last year, Collingwood comes out in the ground, it's the biggest moment, you know, in, in careers. The Collingwood Cheer Squad banner ripped and you know, they put all that work in and it ripped to shreds and they never got to run through it. And one of the um women involved with the cheer squad is absolutely distraught. And Bucks made a beeline for her and gave her a hug and spoke to her for, you know, quite at at length, minutes before the start of the grand final. Yeah. Just stuff like that. Yeah. And you know, I, I sort of think in in t- I've written a column about this actually today for Inkle, which will be up in footyology tomorrow. But oh, if more people in football had that sort of more holistic take on the game and its significance and its importance and particularly when it comes to coverage of that game via these sorts of documentaries gee we'd get some wonderful stuff because there's a lot of not seeing the forest for the trees in football I reckon. Spot on and one last
2: word and I won't give you how this plays out but I think Collingwood part of this documentary shows and Nathan Buckley refers to this a couple of times that from the beginning of the documentary to the very end, that Collingwood was, and he was very much part of this, uh, an arrogant football club that pointed to themselves as being the best and the biggest and the all these boasts, and that that didn't serve them well. And to this end, there is... We talk about the three footballers that are focused on in this documentary, Trelaw, Grundy and Blair. We talk about the coach... Nathan Buckley but there is one other person and I won't go into it because if you haven't seen the documentary it's rewarding as you see this story unfold but it just shows that Collingwood in 2018 had become a different creature not because of their involvement with this individual but because it wasn't made public and I think previously Collingwood would have made a big deal a big song and dance about their relationship with this person and his family and it's a very different Collingwood that kept it quiet yet maintained contact with this person throughout the season right through to the grand final so you can see that in the
0: documentary No, wonderful piece of filmmaking so uh hats off to Josh Cable and Marcus Cobbledick and uh not just certainly not just for Collingwood supporters I think and one of the most frequent reactions on social media was Damn, you know it's making it's getting harder and harder to hate Collingwood. Yeah,
2: but that's exactly right. And I think that's what Collingwood, that's what Nathan Buckley was putting in place. And when he read reads a letter from a West Coast fan at the start of 2019, you'll see how important where the club stands in other people's estimation has become to Nathan.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a very significant moment as well. All right, uh, just before we leave, we'll do, I'll just do this touch on this quickly. But as you know, finally, we've talked about it a bit this year, I really like in the plethora of TV football shows, one, the only one that I sort of really make an effort to watch every week now is on the couch. I like the depth of analysis. Look, it's not perfect, um, but I think it... it gets to a level of analysis that you don't get with other shows, and I find it really professionally helpful. Um, something They did something on this week, though, in previewing the four finals that caught my eye, and it's not as much a comment on them as really the whole football media, but stats are a very important part of football coverage. Now I, I use them a lot. I think it's important that they're always presented in context, and that can be a real issue. And I think we've spoken about that. But this was sort of delving a little bit deeper, and the lack of context I found quite puzzling. So they had what they called a premiership profile of every team. And when, you know, the West Coast Essendon game, they presented these series of stats and whether uh, Collingwood and Essendon shaped up in terms of matching those profile numbers. And the in the categories, the quite technical stuff, the categories were points from turnovers, differential, points from the forward half, opposition scores per inside 50, uh, forward 50 ground ball differential, and and this is one um, on the couch have been talking about all year, the post-clearance contested possession differential. So that last one, not just being the clearance numbers you read in might read in the paper or online or whatever, but the possessions after the first clearance, um, what the contested possession becomes after that, and that's when the ball has been cleared from the absolute sort of thickest congestion, who sort of has that stronger wherewithal to win that contested possession after that. So it makes sense when people explain it, but there's not enough explanation with this stuff. And again, I stress, I'm not just talking about on the couch, this could apply to a number of other sort of forums, be it newspapers or online. So they had these categories and they had an X or a tick whether they pass muster on them. But I want to know what passing muster is. You know, what is a good number for post-clearance contested possession differential? What's a bad number for it? What's what's an average number? How do these stack up against the other teams in the competition? And particularly this post-clearance one, because they have been saying, look, this is a this has become a really, really important indicator for clubs. Well, why can't we see it? You know, there's sort of like this increasing, and I understand the commercial imperative on, on the part of, say, champion data, the stats provider, but the broadcasters, why don't they give us access to this And what happens instead is the whole thing of analysis and special comments, etc., is supposed to be bringing the viewer and the football fan closer to the game and having a better understanding of the technicalities of the game. But by not giving us any context and not giving us any decent sort of layman's type explanations, you actually remove people from it. You make it seem like a secret science or something, and it's some carefully kept secret that we are not privy to.
2: Yeah, look, I just not speaking specifically about statistics, but over-intellectualising sport analysis is a bit of a hobby horse of mine. And the late Les Murray was fated for his introduction to, you know, his, his passion about bringing football to the Australian public, but I was a bit of a critic of Les Murray and yeah. maybe we're far enough detached from his passing that I can mention this. I felt that the SBS coverage head, headed up by Les Murray um, with various other generally Eastern European football influences, coaches, former coaches, that would present soccer matches either Australian internationals, generally Australian internationals, occasionally other matches, World Cup matches, over intellectualise the game. They spoke about the um, different styles. Libero, yeah. <laughs> the sweeper. Yeah, but but they spoke of the uh, of Netsin offensive and the Pushkus formation.
0: Yeah, and see, I, I grew up thinking the Ted offensive was uh, Vietnamese soccer <laughs> tactics. yeah.
2: <laughs> so. Having been involved with Melbourne Victory for the first few years, I've learnt very quickly that there was this sort of um, intellectualisation of the game where there's a lot of one-upmanship, where people would talk about a game of soccer that they've just watched and try and bully their person they were talking to into admission that they didn't understand the game as well as... You know, one person would say, you know, it was a great game by so and so, and the other would one up them by saying, yes, but the sweeping, the covering of Kemp was more important than the incisive double leading forward moves by Allsop, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, this was fostered by
0: not, Craig Foster. Not by Craig Foster, <laughs> but by
2: Les Murray in the SBS coverage that really spoke above the heads of Australians who were just hoping to embrace soccer at a very basic level. Mm. I'm talking about 20, 30 years ago when much less was known of the game. There was no A-League. It was still very ethnically uh, partitioned. And unfortunately, this over-intellectualising of sport does one thing. It alienates watchers. It alienates fans. And it distances people from the game. Yep. And it does nobody any good because I tell you I can tell you this, it made a generation of Australians call soccer wogball because from their perspective it was too hoity toity and it wasn't being pitched to them. Yeah. And I would hate to see football being pitched above the heads of new fans.
0: Yeah, no, spot on, spot on, very well articulated. And if I was a producer of one of these shows, you know, given how many former players are now in the media and we were talking about these sorts of roles, the one thing I'd say to them before every game almost is, remember, mate, you're not there to impress your mates. You're there to be a, a, a conduit. Between the game and the audience, so ne- never forget that.
2: I mean, the best example of why that coverage failed for so many years, for decades in Australia, was until recently, people still saying, "Oh, have a look at the score, nil all. How can you ever go?" In fact, there can be brilliant games of soccer played out to nil all, but this was not explained or or purposefully. Um, reasoned by the people covering the sport. So, until recently, that was the argument of the
0: haters. Yeah. Yeah, no, well put. Uh, All right, there's Media Watch for this week. Well, four big finals. Time we talked about them. On Footyology
1: previews with Punch.
0: Well, it all kicks off Thursday evening, Optus Stadium, 6.10 local time, 8.10 p.m. Eastern Seaboard time. Always determined to get that in. Some massive changes at Selection Finey for the home side. Three big in Schofield, Nick Natanui back on deck. I know you weren't a fan of that idea, but he's back. And Mark Hutchings out. Oscar Allen with some knee soreness. Liam Duggan and uh, Jack Petrocelli. Gee, he's quick. Yeah, quick to miss out. Be quick to dash to the TV uh, and uh, grab a tinny from the fridge because he's not playing. Essendon. Five changes. Rolled the dice on a a couple of guys. I think uh, my mail is that they're all in pretty reasonable nick, these returnees. Coming back into the side, Hooker, Stringer, Fantasia, Heppel and Snelling. Out, Marty Gleeson with a calf injury and all omitted. Hartley, Jock, Begley and Dylan Clark. Uh, Any surprises there at selection for you?
2: Yeah, Dylan Clark. Thought he's had a pretty good season. He's played the run with role. He's got a bigger body, which means that he could have theoretically matched up with an Elliot Yo. I I'm surprised that he can't force his way into a team that has Snelling and Ham on the interchange bench.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. He's probably just tailed off a bit. Um, I wonder if. They're thinking Snelling uh, is a, a real sort of tough in and under type mid. He's been very good at VFL level and looked pretty capable at AFL level in the handful of games he played, got injured, which didn't help. Uh, maybe they just think a uh, bit, bit of a stronger body. Um, it might be, I don't know, sort of... Clark had a stronger body Yeah, well, uh, well, he managed to shut down... Patrick Cripps, who's yeah. as strong as anyone, say, so, "Yeah, look, I, I, I'm not sure of the rationale, but Snelling clearly the replacement there for Clark. I mean, the other ends all speak for themselves. I think it's on paper at least one of the stronger sides. Esnan has fielded all season. One thing that happened when West Coast beat Esnan very comfortably in round 14, and they won by 35 points, but it, it should have been 10 goals, so very inaccurate that night." Um, I'm pretty sure Mark Hutchings went to Adam Sard, which was interesting, but they really...
2: Yeah, he did go to Adam Saad, and that was the night when the coach of Essendon, John Worsfold, was questioned about Saad's game and gave the strangest answer
0: I have ever heard. I don't remember that. What did he say? Saad
2: was completely ineffective and had been blanketed by Hutchings, and do you know what his response was? He goes, well, Saad's a defender, and... His opponent didn't kick any goals, so I don't see what the problem is.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, was well, <laughs> a, a little attempt Facetious? to... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people that watch Essendon know that uh, Sard and McKenna are so important from an offensive point of view. They provide a lot of the pace and uh, Essendon can really get that overlap going and also control the pace of the game. Essendon... I reckon, needs to play fast football. And that happens when those guys are streaming off half-back. If that's not happening and they're stopped, I think they find it don't find it easy to generate the sort of momentum they're after.
2: West Coast seem to have scant respect for the fact that Essendon, at their best, move the ball quicker than any other team in the competition because the side they've selected is big. Yeah, it is and big. And it ain't quick. Now, they've dropped Petrocelli mm. and they've dropped Duggan. Patrick Shelley's quick, and Duggan is a, a a more lively defender. In this team, there is Schofield, Barass, and um, McGovern in yeah. the back line. Yeah. There's Kennedy, Darling, Darling. and Natanui Hickey in the forward line.
0: And Waterman.
2: And Waterman. Uh, Shannon Hearn isn't a speedster. This is not a quick team. No, it's through not the back line through through where they are going to be defending Essendon's run, which is the forward line they've really only Cripps is quick but more offensively no he's good defensively as well I shouldn't say that so he's he's lively, but I just it's a it's saying that we're going to play it on our terms, and what's the forecast Gee, there's been a lot of rain and
0: there's been a lot of rain in Perth I'm over the last two months, pretty sure the forecast is. Seventeen and fine, yeah. so so they're playing to that. Yeah, well, the double edge—it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because I, I think what you're saying is quite right. However, if they can control the midfield, which they certainly did last time, get that ball in uh, you know quick and clean, uh, Essendon is going to struggle with that height.
2: Of course, so it's all about how the midfield delivered the ball to both forward lines. Because if the ball is kicked in a rushed manner into the Essendon forward line, if it's just kicked high, they're going to be annihilated. I mean, Darling is an excellent um, intercept... uh, Pardon me, McGovern's an excellent intercept mark. Now, Barras has come under some criticism in the last 10 days, Mm. but
0: he's not dissimilar to Darling. No, no, he does it well as well. And
2: Schofield's a great spoiler. They're
0: not going to get the ball unless it's run into the forward line, Essendon. Correct. Essendon needs to look for targets high up in that 50... And they also need to um, be probably more aware of their positioning than they would against other sides uh, to, what's the terminology they use, separate the West Coast defenders. So it's harder for McGovern and Barras to zone off and, and act as third man up. And to that end, I think that makes Mitch Brown a more important figure in the outcome of this game than people might otherwise think because in terms of pure talent, you wouldn't have him in the top you know, sort of seven or eight in terms of potential influences. But his hard work running up and back uh, out of that forward 50 could really keep Essendon, um, keep the Essendon defence organised and uh, a viable scoring option. And scoring has been a real issue for them lately. Over the last month, they've averaged just 63 points per game, which is almost three goals less than their season average, which isn't great anyway, at 77. I think they're ranked only 13th in attack. In fact, we talked about this on Sunday night. Statistically, Essendon is sort of ranked mediocre at best in virtually every statistical category. Uh, Tackles is the one thing they sort of excel at, but everything else, mid-table at best. So, look, they're up against it. We've seen the Bulldogs, you know, there's a bit of symmetry, I guess, bring in a clutch of... Players who were injured go go to Perth and stun West Coast in Elimination Final. I think, though, this version of West Coast is a, a much better version than the one that went out in that park in 2016. So, look, I, hard, hard I reckon, to see the Bombers. I, look, I can see them making a, a fist of it. I just can't see them getting over the line.
2: Yeah, I can see them getting absolutely splattered. But... If they can get a foothold in the game, then it might become painfully uh, obvious to Adam Simpson that he doesn't have the right team out there. So it has to be set very early. Their run must work. McKenna and Saad need to be dominant. Now, the risk with playing Hutchings is that he had a hammy, came back, did the hammy again, and has been brought back into the team. There's a danger in that. Natanui, I feel is not fully fit, even when his body's right, but that will not be tested by Bell Chambers. And the beauty here is that they can use Nui sparingly, but damagingly. So it's all about, as we said, run for Essendon, get that going and get their midfield to get some, some sort of space to deliver the ball into the forward line, if not run into the forward line and score themselves. I think West Coast midfield has held up this year. Shuey's sure had a good season. I'm tipping West Coast because for me the more likely outcome is the early imprint on the game will be that of West Coast's.
0: All right, uh, West Coast for both of us. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to Friday night at the MCG. The only one of four finals played in Melbourne this week. Friday evening, 7.50pm, and it's a massive clash between the Cats and the Magpies. How do you see that panning out? Well, for me, Collingwood
2: are bringing back players. This is the key. I mean, we might want to run through the likely inclusions, but they are Dugowie, they are Stevenson, and they are inclusions that make an already dangerous small forward line quicker and more dangerous again. I just feel overall that Geelong's second half of the season has been one of hanging on rather than building on a great first half of the season.
0: Well, it has. They were 11 1 after 12 games and 5 uh, 5 in the 10 since. And I think it might be an eight week period now they've gone loss, win, loss, win, loss, Correct.
2: win. Correct. Collingwood certainly found themselves in a mid season funk. But they've been able to shrug that, and they. Isn't it funny how it's it's invariably been an interstate trip to wake Collingwood up.
0: Yeah, that's been the case for a long time, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, they they seem to have the ability to sort of um, batten down the hatches, get within the four walls, as a football team likes to say, and really enjoy each other's company, go away, win a game, come back and turn that into something fruitful. The last game against Essendon. They won. as It was quite a good performance by Essendon, but they did what needed to be done. More importantly, it showed that Elliott is ready to play finals football. They now, I think, are willing to go into a finals with Mahochek at the tall and then more a Richmond-type forward line from 2017 with mids and smalls around him. And mm. I think that's the way to go rather than horning roughhead down at the wrong end of the ground?
0: My, my only concern here, I mean look a few people have talked about the concerns with bringing back guys who've been injured and sort of lack of conditioning my reservation is as much about um, gelling with the other blokes in that part of the ground so you look at Dagoe and Stevenson and think wow that's going to make the forward set up a lot better and look it, it, it should and it um, logically it should And it, it could But I'm just thinking A guy like Jamie Elliott Now his Recent renaissance Has been really important He he would have barely Played with Stevenson And Dagoe If at all Um do the three of them work in that zone, or do they end up getting in each other's way? That sort of stuff. You'll we'll find
2: out on Friday night.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you'd, you know, you'd you'd rather have them than not have them, but it it is sort of a, a calculated gamble in that sense, isn't it? I'm big on, you know, when sides get into the finals being settled and having that sort of chemistry established, and um, you know, look in the case of Essendon, I mean, it the names are. The names are alluring, you know, but does the reality sort of play out the way you think it might on paper? Um, a couple of interesting things here. I guess they haven't played each other since round one. You know, a lot of waters got under the the bridge since then. Um, they certainly, uh, pie certainly pushed along right to the brink in that first game with seven points um, of the margin, I think, in the end. Uh, Cats have got a good record on the G this year, 4-1, their their record on the MCG this year, whereas that was a bit of an issue for them last year. They've beaten Collingwood the last three times. They've played them too. I just feel with the Cats finey like, and what you say is spot on. I mean, they're, they're not the team they were in the first half of the year. I just have an inkling that they're getting back there, though. If you look at their last three weeks, so they very effective smackdown down of both North Melbourne and Carlton, and whilst they're two non-final sides, they were sides that had found a bit of form, so that's not to be snoozed at. In between, they lost to Brisbane by a point at the Gabba, and that is clearly uh, a pretty good effort in, in the context of this year, and it's a game that they, they should have won. I mean, they controlled it for a large chunk of that game. So I think they're getting back there, and I think, Gradually, the spark has come back too. like that. They, they were looking pretty pedestrian to me for a fair while, but I reckon the forward, the forward fifty sort of pressure that we saw earlier in the season—you know, Dowhouse, Atkins, Rowan, Myers—I think they're getting that back. I think Dowhouse is sort of putting his hand up a bit more again. Um, Atkins will be interesting to see whether they uh, go pick him or not. I suspect they probably will. Um, And it'd be interesting to see uh, Collar Jasney's the other one who probably should play. Uh, It'd be interesting to see who gets left out. You know, might be a veteran in Lockie Henderson. Even some speculation, someone like Zach Toohey might have to make way. He played as a a forward in the last game. So um, they've got some interesting selection issues to ponder as well. I think this is likely... the, The other thing about Geelong having the wood pardon the pun, on Collingwood in recent times, the common denominator in all these wins has been they have held Collingwood to very low scores. So they've been quite defensive, low-scoring scraps, but the Cats have prevailed in them. So you get the feeling Collingwood really needs to sort of open it up and make it more of an outside game, that if it's in tight and tough and close, Geelong will probably prevail. And I, I do tend to think that's more likely the sort of game that it will be than an open and free-flowing game.
2: You know, when we give our opinions and we preview these games of football, I guess we have predetermined ideas. I have mine, you have yours and we go ahead and sort of yap away for a couple of minutes each. But I've actually listened to yours. A
0: couple of minutes. Yeah, go on.
2: I've listened to yours and I'm going to change my selection.
0: I really? Am I that convincing? I'm actually... Well, I actually, it didn't say who I was tipping,
2: yeah? Um, well, it certainly lent towards Geelong. Yeah. And I was going to tip Collingwood, but there's... I now agree with something. Actually, those wins over North Melbourne and Carlton were very good. Yeah. North Melbourne and Carlton, around that, were proving to be stiff opposition. In fact, you can look at Carlton's game against Richmond as the last time that Richmond didn't control the game from go to woe. Mm. So to... Punish them as they did was brilliant. Now, you saw what happened the week after North Melbourne were held to one goal. They got 15 goals between Brown and Larkey. Yeah. So they're not a low-scoring team. I know the conditions were poor. And then I thought, maybe that wet weather, which team would be suited? Because it's supposed to be fairly inclement tomorrow night in Melbourne. Well, I'd definitely Geelong, the bigger-bodied team, to me, seems the better bet. So having come in here originally... All this about Collingwood. I'm turned around. And I'm tipping Geelong.
0: All right. Uh, well, well done.
2: C- case well
0: made. Okay. Well, uh, may I now see you some life insurance?
2: No. But it, <laughs> you,
0: <laughs> now you cannot tip Collingwood. I yeah. know. Oh, I'm not tipping Collingwood. Oh, look. I think it'll be tight. Um, but you know, low scoring. is probably more likely to be tight. Um, I I just hope most of all it's a great game. But I am I am tipping the Cats. To advance, and that won't necessarily be the end of the pies, but uh, they lost the qualifying final last year, of course, and almost won a flag. So let's see what happens. But Cats to take the points first up for me. All right, second elimination final Saturday afternoon at Giant Stadium, 3.20 p.m. local time. GWS taking on the Western Bulldogs. Uh, Return to a couple of other... Storied clashes of recent times Obviously the most famous The classic 2016 preliminary final Which I think uh, Channel 7's game day in a poll Voted the game of the decade uh, Last weekend Which is interesting Um, And of course the Bulldogs Absolutely smashed the Giants there Only a few weeks back What do you think happens in this one?
1: There's
2: a trap that the Bulldogs cannot fall into and that is to want to recreate what happened a few weeks ago because, I don't know if you remember in the lead up to that game, I said that anybody that tipped GWS had rocks in their head. They just simply at that stage were floundering and Bulldogs were gaining wonderful momentum. Well, that wonderful momentum was not helped by the bye. Mm. Be assured of that. And GWS have this year gone through the entire spectrum of good football to atrocious football, very hard to pick which GWS lines up. I'll say this, that they will be well served by the week off.
0: Yes. Uh,
2: Somebody like Josh Kelly would appreciate the week off. They would most likely get back Hopper, who was a big out for them over the last, you know, when he wasn't playing, Mm. that was a big loss. Big bodied midfielder, very physical individual.
0: Well, in terms of the inns, I mean, uh, they stand to regain Green, Haynes and Hopper.
2: Well, Green was rested for the last game. Yeah. I mean, he was fit, but he, he's been playing particularly well. Hopper is a huge inclusion. And more importantly, their, ruck, their ruckman, Mumford, mm. would have loved the week off because he's playing sore most weeks. Yeah. And as much as I'm very impressed by the Bulldogs' run to the finals... I do believe it was momentum on momentum on momentum. And they still are at this stage. Maybe next year with Josh Bruce, it'll be different. But I think their forward line is vulnerable. And I'm tipping the Giants.
0: Yeah, look, uh, there's certainly been a feeling people coming back around to the the Giants. And I think the the week off is probably a factor in that. I, I just... The one thing I disagree with you on is the uh, the potency argument. And We did mention this the other day, but um, the one thing about the, this Bulldogs side that is completely different to 2016 is the scoring profiles have almost been completely transposed. Um, in 2016, the Dogs were uh, third for defence and uh, at fewest points conceded, and only the 12th highest scoring team, which is pretty extraordinarily low for a premiership side. And this year, that is uh, completely uh, transposed. They are third for attack, and I think they're 13th uh, for fewest points conceded. So they're vulnerable to being a bit leaky defensively, but they are able to slam on the goals. And, um, you know, it's in some ways an unlikely forward combination they've discovered. Norton, playing, who played initially as a backman. You know, Shacky, who's been... Um, uh, much maligned at, at times. Uh Bailey Dale, who would have picked him to sort of emerge as a uh, a heavy duty goal kicker. You know, Sam Lloyd has been, I think, more valuable than some thought he might be. They do get good goal returns out of their midfielders as well. You know, we see Bontempelli creeping forward a bit more. He's a valuable goal kicker when he does that. Um so they're quite potent up forward and look GWS's defence is sound, but I reckon they can test them. And the other area I reckon they can get them perhaps is is with their run. Um, now GWS at their best perhaps three years ago were a, a great run and gun side themselves, but they've become a more, uh, I'm not saying they're, they're sort of uh, dour by any stretch, but they've become a more tradesman-like, workman-like outfit than they were. And I don't think that sort of outside game is as much of a strong suit as it was. In fact, they're, you know their biggest strength statistically, well, they're pretty strong all-round actually. They rank high for both contested and uncontested ball. They rank high for clearances. Um, reasonably efficient with the opportunities they get to. I think they rank third for percentage of goals per inside 50. There you see, oh, well, we, we gave you a number with that. We didn't just say a cross or a tick um so I've got my feeling on the Giants is I have no doubt they can rise to some pretty decent heights uh on their day and that's the key to me does that day come often enough not this year I don't think I, I just I certainly can't see them stringing four such performances together can they do it against the dogs I, I feel like the dogs sort of reckon they've got the Giants covered, they know how to beat them, they know what they need to do, the venue doesn't pose any fears, they've had great wins there as we outlined previously, and I I agree with you about the interruption to momentum, but it doesn't necessarily have to be fatal, Um, and I think the Giants have had some absolute stinkers, I mean their last outing, yes, was beating up Gold Coast, but... Is that great preparation? I'm not convinced it is. When the two performances uh, preceding that were terrible losses, um, no goals
2: in the second half
0: twice. Yeah. You know uh, that that really sets the alarm bells ringing for me in terms of capacity to win a final. So I am going for the Bulldogs to, uh, albeit after an interruption to momentum, keep that winning run going. They've won eight of their last eleven games too, so that would make it nine out of twelve. Of course they finished 7th in 2016, there'd be a bit of Twilight theme music going in the background if they knock over the Giants and get into a semi-final and they'd certainly provide some think music for either uh, who's it going to be, Brisbane or Richmond, whoever loses their qualifying final. So we differ on this one. You are going for GWS. I'm sticking with the zones, yeah. And I am going for the Western Bulldogs. All right, let's move on to the second leg of a big Saturday doubleheader, and this is the much-anticipated game at the Gabba. It's the second qualifying final between Brisbane and Richmond, and it starts at 7.25.
2: The Gir Forest in Gujarat in India.
0: Yes, I know it well.
2: 3,000 square kilometres of national national
0: park. I often go there to meditate.
2: Good. It's actually the only place on earth where, even though they've not been ever filmed together, wild lions and tigers coexist. Contrary to popular belief, there's very little overlapping of their habitats. Tigers (laughs) live in forests and lions (laughs) tend to live on savannas. Okay. Nevertheless, in the gear forest, there is the possibility of a lion and tiger clashing. It would be considered the home territory, I guess, of the tiger, but the lion would give a good account of itself, as was the case in the final round of the season. Swap this around and put a tiger into the savannas of Africa, away from its home territory, and it may well find itself out of place. Would the tiger be able to kill a lion, say, in the national parks of the uh, Okavango? Sorry, I would uh, say
0: no. Sorry, I'm just. Am I listening to a, an AFL preview or an episode of Kung Fu? And I'm about to say yes, grasshopper. You are listening to
2: a parallel story of tigers and no, lions. No, I like it a lot. Away from home or at home.
0: Wait, when did that analogy pop into your head, just out of interest?
2: Uh, about three
0: minutes ago. <laughs> so. Uh, Google is your friend.
2: So I knew about the Gujarati gear forest. There, there's also the floodplains in northern Asia, but there unfortunately have been very few sightings. Of Siberian you tigers did that Af- far south.
0: You did mention Africa at one stage. Yeah, you know I am saying, how would
2: a tiger cope in Africa? They actually relocated well, you know know tigers how to cope? Africa.
0: <laughs> I knew you'd do this to me. Sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti.
2: Well, at least you've got a song for the end of the show. <laughs> oh so, no, I have. <laughs> so the fact is, I am asking the question: the tigers handled the lions at the MCG can they do likewise up at the Gabba? Now, the one stat that I am completely disinterested in is that Brisbane have never lost a home final since they've become the Lions. Yeah, and how many? Who cares? Is it, 12. Yeah. Well, it's impressive. It's impressive, but it's irrelevant. Yeah. That's like saying, you know, Jack Dyer would have trounced the midfield of... Brisbane had he had the opportunity, it's it's not relevant. The, Who
0: random closest to finding?
2: Who's that? To are you going to say Essendon?
0: Yeah, nineteen ninety
2: six oh, qualifying Carlton final one, Carlton, one point. Okay, the scoreline Carlton almost had him.
0: Oh, if Gavin Wanganine hadn't stood in a pothole in the goal square, Essendon would have won. These Anyways, things go happen. On. Go on.
2: So in the end, can Richmond be Richmond up at the Gabba? And I say absolutely yes. Yeah, because. They are a seasoned finals campaigner. More important to me than Brisbane's 12-0 record in finals is the fact that this team hasn't been in the finals for quite a while. Some of their players have. They've got a smattering, a s- smattering mm. of great finals experience. Headline act, of course, Luke Hodge. Nevertheless, I defer to the team that did it. Everywhere but at the MCG against Collingwood in the preliminary final last year. For the last two years, they have been very much a controlled, brilliant finals outfit.
0: Yeah, yeah no, they no, look really good. Um, well, they do, haven't done it
2: everywhere, but they've done it in finals with great competency.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, a couple of things. I, I think that as prepara- for an inexperienced side, relatively speaking, in finals terms... What Brisbane has gone through in the last few weeks has been really good preparation, particularly that round 23 game against the Tigers. A, it was biggest home and away crowd Brisbane's ever played in front of, 77,000. B, they were jumped at the start because they were a bit jittery, eased into the game and really had found their feet by the end of it. And in fact, Chris Fagan made this point. He was quite entitled to that, statistically, the game looked very good for them. In, and now Richmond can give you a bit of a false read because they don't necessarily play the way most sides do. And there's a lot of effective things they do, the little taps and knock-ons and forcing of the ball forward that might not be reflected purely in statistical terms. But Brisbane certainly held their own in those sort of fundamental stats that by which sides measure themselves. And it was more about... Uh, a little bit of nerves and anxiety early on, I think, and lack of steadiness as anything. So I think they'll be much better off from that point of view. Having said that, uh, the Tigers have now won nine in a row. Brisbane had won nine in a row, but the Tigers are primed. You know, they they are, on reflection, I think they're in, in better shape than they were this time last year. You know, they had... They just started sort of tapering off a bit towards the end of the home and away games last year. This year, I think they're, they're going the other way. Dusty Martin seems right back to his absolute best. Uh, you know, Cochin's now back in the lineup and rehabilitated. Injury-wise, they're looking great, apart from um, the obvious one, uh, Alex Rance, who they won't be getting back. Oh, Sydney Stack would make them better as well. He's still a chance, I think, down the track. Um But, you know, in terms of personnel, they're as good as they can be. Actually, Brisbane's injury uh, card has been very, very short all year, which has been a huge benefit for them. Don't tell me injuries don't play a huge part in the destination of the Premiership. I think the home advantage is significant enough. You know, Brisbane will certainly feel at home uh, like the crowd's on their side, I think most of the neutrals will be on their side they're the feel good story of this final series I just think Richmond might be a bit tougher and a bit harder at it when it counts um, their tackling, their harassment, their capacity to uh, corral opposition ball carriers you know just with weight of numbers force the ball forward and uh, pounce on it I think the uh, chemistry, synergy, whatever you like to call it, between Lynch and Rewalt has got better and better and better and is looking terrific, particularly in the last couple of games. Um, Nancurvis, does he come back? That's going to be an interesting selection issue for the Tigers. I tend to think he, he will. I tend On to the think back he
2: of that final, that Caused you so much grief? Yeah,
0: it did. Uh, it was. No, I was in an, the VFL. It was an amazing quarter of footy last week, uh, albeit in the VFL. But I, th- yeah, I think he comes back, um, which would be stiff. for... actually, could they play Soldo and Nankervis? I guess Bolter played last time, so it's possible. Uh, if Bolter, they, goes yeah, they out. tend to
2: play Bolter and one of the other two. Yeah, because Bolter can go forward and. Be more of a position player rather than Soldo.
0: So, look, I... I Soldo think... looks
2: a bit like Blakey from On the Buses.
0: Uh, sort of a European version.
2: Yeah, and, and the guy from Alo Alo.
0: What's... Cro- uh, Soldo, what's Croatian for bus if there's a Croatian on the buses? That'd be Ivan Soldo. Yeah, on the buses. I'm I, I've,
2: to... got a, I've got a word that I would use next, but you can't use it on the I'll get pod. you, <laughs> But it's on the buses effing, because... When you hear Croatians speak English, they use the F word a lot. Yeah. Even as, as, or as everything, as verbs, as adjectives, as noun. So I spoke to the effing and I said...
0: That sounds like my son.
2: So it'd be on the bus as effing. <laughs>
0: okay. Um, all right, probably time to give a tip on this. I, am go- I think it'll be a great game. I think it'll be good to watch too. I find both these sides good to watch. Uh, But I am going for Richmond to win and to advance to a preliminary final. You too? uh, Yes, you too. (laughs) Yeah, you too. Uh, All right, so one tip, only one tip difference with us, and that is you, of course, going for GWS, me going for the Western Bulldogs. All right, uh, let's wrap this baby up.
1: On Footyology, the final word.
0: Rightio, competition time. Now, we did have a uh, super-duper sort of extended competition last time and we announced the winner last Sunday. Just a, a, Actually, we did get a bit of late correspondence in that, didn't we? And, of course, we're asking people to nominate their favourite non-AFL game and, and give us a bit of a, an explanation as to why. And one came in quite late last night. Of course, competition has been run and won. But uh, this is a game we've talked about. ...on this program, so I thought it was worth elaborating.
2: Yeah, Peter Walker, well done. One of my favourites and Rowan's as well. The game I recall, said Peter, was the 1976 VFA relegation game at the Beach Road Oval, of course now the Trevor Barker Oval, between Sandringham and Oakley, and it was a very spiteful affair as these desperate relegation games tended to be. Spot fires and brawls breaking out all game long. The two incidents, however, which stood out for Peter was the Alf-Buse incident the Sandringham fullback was reported for striking the boundary umpire and was subsequently suspended for two years, which was overturned on appeal. And probably the famous image from the game was a brawl in the forward pocket boundary line that was on the roadside of the ground, and the crowd were leaning over the fence, and it caused the picket fence with the hoardings to collapse. And it was an amazing sight of fans and players, sort of fans tumbling onto the field and players stepping over fans to punch other players. It was an amazing sight, an amazing game. Sandringham eventually overcame Oakley and the Devils were sent to the second second division. It was on Channel O with Phil Gibbs and Ted Henry.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I'm Almost certain I watched it and uh, not often... You saw a match of the day being the bottom sides But a relegation yeah. clash Desperate desperate
2: game that beats Oval
0: Yeah, and that was sort of the Pretty much the end of it for the Oaks, wasn't it? I mean, did they sort of stay in second division thereafter? Or I reckon they did
2: Yeah, they certainly weren't the powerhouse that they were They, of course, had the pleasure of watching Reno Preto Kick a million goals Yes, that's right He did that by ignoring every teammate that he ever played with Yeah <laughs>
0: Uh, yes, so uh, thanks for that belated entry, Peter. So uh, they had some good
2: players, Oakley.
0: Big Bob Johnson,
2: Big Bob Johnson, uh, Halliday, the ruck, a, a grey-haired ruckman called Quinn. Oh yeah, um, what was his? They first had name? a couple of, uh, I think it was John Quinn, maybe, but they, I'm not sure actually. But they had um, a couple. They had a good halfback flanker from St Kilda called Lily, John Lily. Yeah, uh, Lance Taylor played for them.
0: Did they have a Manane as well? Not the Hawthorne no, Peter Manane.
2: You know, Bill Barrett played for them.
0: Yeah. Uh, in seventy two. I think he played in that premiership yeah. when they beat Danny I like their jumpers too, the purple fantastic. and gold.
2: That, that was a fantastic jumper. The, yeah.
0: The the Cadbury's purple. Yeah, yeah. Made you want to go and woof down a Family block of Caramello or something. So, great
2: entry there by Peter Walker. All right,
0: so what? what's the task for this week?
2: All right, uh, finals are upon us and optimism is high for the eight, f- eight um, clubs and their supporters. But sometimes finals end in tears. We want to get your personal take on finals disasters. Now, it might be not just your team, but also... The, your experience, maybe going into state to watch them, paying a fortune for a ticket, all ending in tears. So how have the finals ended unsatisfactorily for you and your club? The most poignant entry, the biggest, probably, tearjerker, and the one that pulls the heartstrings the hardest, will win the prize.
0: Yeah, we, we want some effort put in, and not saying people haven't been putting in effort, because they do, but we want to see some, some literary... Craftsmanship here, a bit yeah. of a, a, you know, a tale of woe, a tale of passion, unrewarded. Bit yeah. of Harold Robbins in there, you know. or maybe Robbins,
2: Rob—that's from Faulty Towers. Oh, Robbins,
0: <laughs> Trans-Atla- <laughs> transatlantic trash. Uh, yeah. I thought you said Robinson. <laughs> um, and uh, the best entry will win Waldorf and- salad. <laughs> and what? What will they win? They will win a Andrew's Hamburgers T-shirt in your size. Uh, By the way, I might have neglected to say last Sunday, I can't remember the name of our winner, but uh, I'm sure you'll be listening. So please... uh, Forward details. Yeah, of uh, shirt size so we can get the right one out to you. Andrew's Hamburgers T-shirt and Andrew's Hamburgers cap and a magnificent 100% natural organic cotton Argan gym towel. Lovely little prize pack for the best... I was going to say neatest, but uh, it's not a really an issue in, <laughs> in an email, words, i you remember those. Remember the neatest handwriting? You yeah, should, yeah. It should yeah. be a way of sort of... Uh, um, penmanship. Yeah, penmanship when it comes to email. And probably soon will be a way you can handwrite emails with those little pen things you have on iPads. Anyway, I digress. Get your entries in to info at au. Winners to be announced next Thursday night. Give me a wild guess. you got one more thing. Yeah.
2: I, I think we have to thank... We've got Radio Royalty helping us put this program together.
0: I was getting to that, but go on. Oh, sorry. On. No, no, sorry. No, 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 no. No, if you're no. all prepared for that. No, you do it.
2: Well, Colin Tyrus, a name that would be familiar to long-standing listeners, I think, of 3AW. News time. <laughs> They're
0: <laughs> very good. 3XY? Colin. Yeah, Foreign and for 3XY. <laughs> So, were, were you there when they made the controversial call sign change from 1420 to 1422? I
1: was. I yeah. started at 1420 and I've got most of it left. Yeah.
0: Do you know, we... Uh, I, I told in, you why. I was to, i was in year eight when that happened. We talked about that at school for days. We just couldn't get our head around how we we're going to say 1422. I'm so old
1: that I uh, three, AW was 1270 when I started. Oh, wow.
0: But I've explained
2: to you why it had to go to 1422.
0: What was it? I can't because oh, all, everyone moved.
2: all AM bands in Melbourne must add up to the number 18. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. A... <laughs> and people go, 1422, but I guarantee anyway, you... Anyway,
0: explain to our audience why Colin is with us.
2: Well, Carl, our regular uh, producer and panel assistant... Has, has done has, a runner. Has gone overseas. He has. To the didn't bi- tell us, but To the gone. Bianco family... Mansion, mansion in Tuscany. I don't know where the Biancos are from, but it sounds Tuscan to me. Yeah, and we've got the Tyro that is Colin Tyrus.
0: Uh, Do you think he's slightly overqualified for this position?
2: Do you reckon we tied? (laughs) Do you reckon we tied out Colin (laughs) Tyrus? Um, Uh, No, but many thanks. Pleasure.
0: Uh, Yes, thank you indeed, Colin. And listen,
2: uh, that that's a
0: proper radio voice. Yeah, Can is you just a... say something radio-y, a bit of back-announcing or something?
1: Yeah, well, this has been Footyology. What a great podcast. Unusual. Actually,
0: you can sign off for us, Colin, because we always finish off with a song, and uh, unfortunately, I don't know why, I'll tell you what, for, I suppose allegedly hate this song, but I sure as hell seem to talk about it a lot. Uh Finey's is magnificent, this by Toto? It is, of course it is. Uh, Finey's magnificent lions and tigers analogy made me think of... Africa by Toto, and uh, as we leave you, uh, enjoy the first week of the finals. Hope your team Hang on, gets Col- a win. Hey, well Colin's going to s- see us out. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot what I just said I was going to do. Um, we'll see you on Sunday night, and uh, Colin, if you'll do the honours, please. Footyology rocks Melbourne. Here's Toto and Africa.